So in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he talks about something called a mindset. A mindset. It's something which affects our relationships. It's not just an idea on its own, it's an idea which affects relationships. And when we say a mindset, what we mean is it's a, there's a fixed mental attitude. There's a disposition that's going to predetermine how you respond to and how you interpret situations. It's like a, an inclination or a habitual way of thinking about things. And, you know, in relationships, we have habitual ways of relating. So the question is, have you thought that you actually have mindsets about the people you know? Mindsets that have developed over years. Because things happen between people and that leads to both people forming an opinion of the other. And that opinion then becomes like a pair of glasses through which you look at the other person. And everything that they say and do gets filtered by this sort of glasses that you have. And it's another picture of that is like a dirty windscreen. You know, it's got all the bugs scattered randomly over the place. And you can't see the road completely clearly, but you keep driving on because you're lazy, but you don't want to clean the windscreen. But also because your mind fills in what it's not actually seeing there. It fills in the parts that it can't see because there's a bug squashed there. And it's the same with people. Your mind fills in the things that you don't actually see and hear from them. It guesses the parts in between their words. And we sort of make a sport out of it and sort of think, see ourselves as experts at, at guessing what the real motives behind the words actually were. And we, we can be really sure, we know why they said that. But mostly our guesses are wrong. But we don't realise it and we don't care to find out. Well, you can expect people, after a while, you expect people to act and react in certain ways. And you say, oh, that's what they always say, or oh, that's what they're like, or oh, you can't expect them to do that, can you? Expectations. And what you expect from people drives how you treat them. You treat them according to what you think about them. If you think they're pretty, you treat them differently from if you think they're ugly, or if you think there's a, they're clever, or they're good, or they're bad, or they wouldn't do that. Now, that can be perfectly normal. It can be healthy to have expectations of people if your mindset keeps getting updated as people live their life and you accept them and update your picture of them and delight in the fact that they're changing as a person. But it can be unhealthy if your opinion of someone stays fixed, unmoving, maybe unforgiving because of a hurt or a deliberate attack and so on. And it can be unhealthy if a hurt from years ago is still hurting you today. Now in real life, the fact is people hurt us because they don't understand us or 
They say untrue things about us because they haven't got all the facts or they're just lazy with the details or maybe they don't like us. People hurt us and often they don't realise they're hurting you. They say things which are just little things to them but they're enormous issues for you. And people hurt us and usually, but not always, what do we do? Hurt them back. And there's been many a book about that, many a sermon spoken, many a counselling session devoted to helping people deal with those hurts. But we've got to see this morning in Philippi, in Philippi, or to the Philippians, what does Paul say here about how to handle hurts? And what is going to hold up as one of the key things to have which will enable you to heal hurts and move through hurts is the mindset of Jesus. The mindset of Jesus. The same habitual attitudes that Jesus has. And I know how important having the right mindset is for a community like Mucker. Because when you've known people for a lifetime, it's so very easy to get stuck on something which happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You can get stuck. And you can get stuck on either side of a hurt. The person who does the hurting, <coughs> they can remain stuck with their opinion or their mindset which caused it. And they can be stuck also because maybe they are ignorant of what the hurt was that the other person got from them. Well, they can be stuck because they don't really love the person that they hurt. They're non-loving or they're prideful or they're willfully arrogant or they're non-sympathetic. So they can get stuck on that side. The person who gets hurt can get stuck on the other side by taking things way more personally than was intended. And by thinking that the best thing I can do with this hurt is hang on to it. Or by thinking, I'm a helpless against this person. They've robbed me of my power by what they did. Or they can get stuck there by not realising, oh, hold on, what they did touched something else really deep in me. And the pathway through solving hurts, uh, often many stages, things can take years, and we've got to avoid simply saying, oh, just do this one thing, they'll fix it. Or... Make it into two things, what we call a binary solution. Uh, it's either your way or it's my way. You win or I lose. So we're not talking too much today about that healing pathway, but we're talking about underneath it, the foundation, the starting point, the starting attitude to have when you go through a process of healing a hurt. It's the best attitude to have when you tackle a hurt as you go through the hurt and after you've done it. The same mindset which Jesus has. And the best news is that that mindset has actually been implanted in every believer already. See, when by believing in Jesus you became united with Christ and the Holy Spirit came to dwell within, he actually implanted the necessary mindset within us because... It is Christ. He is the one with the necessary mindset. And 2 verse 1 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we're united with Christ, we've got Christ in us. 
But how big is it at that point? It's a bit like a seedling. And you know when you grit a seedling, you take it and you plant it in the garden, you have to feed it, you have to water it, you have to spray it for bugs, you have to pull out the weeds, so look after it till it becomes big. And in time, if it was a carrot seed, it would become a carrot, and if it's a grapevine, it'll produce grapes and so on. It's not set and forget, which is just what's happened in us as Christians. We have to work very carefully, we have to be compassionately and caringly looking after the same attitude of Christ that's implanted in us in a small seedling and let it grow so we become more and more, that mindset becomes more and more us. And we're given a whole lifetime to do that. So we don't have to win it in one day. Given a whole lifetime to nurture Christ's attitude and we need to do it diligently and we need to get stronger and stronger at this because sometimes the very deepest hurts of life we can't face until later on in life. And we don't want to put it off because the longer you put it off, the worse they get. So nurture this attitude for all of your life. Don't think, I've arrived, solved all my problems. And so as we explore Christ's attitude, Paul is going to first remind us that we've already received heaps. We've already got heaps of good stuff from our Lord and Saviour. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Did you see those things? There's comfort, there's sharing, there's tenderness and compassion there. Because when you're united with Christ, believing in Jesus is encouraging. Amen? <laughs> Knowing that your eternity is going to be good, that you have a Holy Spirit within you, that you have a new godly family, all of us have received a lot of encouragement just simply from being united with Christ. Some comfort from his love, some sense of connection with God, which we now have because the Holy Spirit is in us. And we've received the tenderness and compassion of Jesus, which is our starting point, says Paul. Remember what you already have. Remember what you already have. And that's <clears throat> one of the things that the enemy likes to work on. He uses this thing called FOMO, the fear of missing out. That's what um, he offered Eve in the garden. Did God really say, you might be missing out on something here? And how much is there, the length and the breadth of interesting things to see and interesting things to read about, to visit, to view, to buy, to sell? There's always something better. There's always something more high-tech, more cutting-edge. And if you don't have it, you, you really need this to complete your, your lot of stuff. And the world is sort of in this new searching for new things in the shop till you drop. When the going gets tough, the tough get shopping, you know. But what does that do? Counterintuitively, the result of having a staggering amount of choices is actually massive dissatisfaction not satisfaction because you can never buy everything that you need <laughs> it's never enough so against that promise of the world that there are so many wonderful things to do except come to church Paul says remember what you have the person who considers that the glass is half full is a satisfied person a half empty person Never satisfied. So we must so we think about having the right attitude. Don't forget that in Jesus we already 
have everything we need. We don't need every hurt healed. For all, we have everything we need for an eternity with the Lord. And that'll be an eternity without hurts. Hallelujah. And so, being reminded of what you already have in Christ, Paul says, use that to become like-minded. Become one in the Spirit, in the mind of Jesus. So, well, let's look at that. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So what's like-minded mean? Does it mean we all have to have the same thoughts and support the same footy team? No. It's being alike in the sense of love. Same love, having the same love, like-minded in love. Uh, uh, a good functioning family is a great illustration of this because you've got everyone in the family and they're all different. The thing which is the same about them is that they love one another and that enables them to talk through things till they become like-minded about things like birthday parties and Christmas arrangements. And so... That foundation, love one another, heal hurts through genuine love for one another. And then there's some more attitudes Paul's going to throw in now, verse 3 there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Selfish ambition, what's that? Just wanting to be successful, wanting to be rich and powerful. One of the uh, illustrations I heard was the, the American baseball coach and he's got the new kid comes into the team and he says to the kid, show us how you take your stance to, to, uh, to uh, have a hit. And the guy just stands there and does nothing. Well, show us your stance. He said, no, I just want to grow up and be rich and make a lot of money. He wanted the fame. He wasn't prepared to do the work. So selfish ambition is like that. They want the reward. They want to be famous for being famous. They want to be a CEO because they get the lurk trips. And then there's that vain conceit. Do I look good in black? You know? Well, nobody does it the way I do. And those are the sort of things we just keep a check on in our life, don't we? Do, uh, Got to ask ourselves, am I doing a good job here in order to be noticed or because I actually care about my customers? A good test is, do you do something and nobody notices? Do you get offended about that? And so consider whether selfish ambition and vain conceit are what it is that's making you feel hurt. Because they do. And if that's the case, get rid of them first. Is it just your pride that got hurt? So, anyway, let's get into Jesus' mindset that deeply affects human relationships. And as we do, we've got to rem remember something important, that Jesus experienced the worst of human relationships. And you've got to remember that when the devil lies and tells you stuff like, nobody knows what you're going through. No one understands you. So there's no point in telling anyone. Just keep it to yourself because no one else cares. And it's also 
gives us a perspective on our hurts because no matter how painful it feels to you, remember that Jesus experienced far worse than you faced. I mean, have you been crucified lately? So, Jesus' mindset and it's to relationship problems in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's a very profound verse, isn't it? About what went on. And it confronts us because it's just so tempting to want to be the boss, to be in charge of every situation and to be in charge in every situation. And what a contrast to the normal way of things is Jesus' attitude. I mean, it's not normal to give up a head office job and go back on the tools, is it? It's not normal. I mean, who lays down the power, the privileges and the prestige of the top job in a company and goes down and becomes an ordinary worker again? I might have to grudgingly admit there are some parallels in what Jesus did with that TV show, Undercover Boss. Seen that one? Undercover Boss, in which the boss goes down, discloses himself, works at the bottom level uh, just to see how the company's going and usually finds that some guys are slacking off and some are going really good and they... The show gets a lot of uh, attractiveness out of the fact that every now and then they find a really good worker who's been unrecognised and they, they give them a good bonus. But in Jesus' case, the undercover boss does the most painful, the worst job in his company in order to reformat the whole company. Jesus goes and he does the dirty work. He takes out all the garbage to cleanse the company. And in order to do that, he had to give up the highest authoritative position there is, being God. I mean, how, how important is that? And made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there's an interesting thought here about being nothing and, and the image of God, because you know we're made in the image of God. It says that in Genesis, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And now this time, he turns it around. He makes himself, in, Jesus is made in human likeness, found in an appearance as a man. I mean, if you were to look at Jesus, you'd see he's a man. There would be no doubt about that. We wouldn't be able to see the invisible spirit of God who makes that possible. But what Jesus has done is he's reversed engineered a solution and he's totally entered into our life condition to heal the human problem of sin and he's become the representative on the ground to implement the plan of salvation and the solution that he came up with is really costly. He needed to be absolutely obedient to make this happen. He laid down his authority 
to come amongst us as a man. He became obedient to everything. Jesus gave them a sense of, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Well, he's God, but he's also Jesus, but he only does what the Father is doing. That's laying down his authority. That's following orders. And I, as I think of, and see that, I find that very challenging because if you're anything like me, you don't really like following instructions. But even Jesus, the Word, became obedient, followed orders. Mind you, he had the best boss ever. And he could be confident of the love of that boss and he confident of the power of that boss. But it didn't mean it was an easy thing to do, to follow orders. And when it came down to following the hardest of all orders, what was his attitude? He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's possible, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus obediently took on the worst part of his job. And down on earth, the leaders we most respect are the ones who are willing to do just that, the really hard work to be the leader. I once read a story of overcrowded Soviet prisons where they jammed stacks and stacks of people so you can hardly move. And if you wanted to move, you had to all move at the same time. And for that to happen, they needed a leader to say, all right, time to move, folks. And in the story, the leader, who was he? He was the one closest to the door. He was the one who took the beatings from the guards who could reach in that far. He did the hard stuff so that his word was worthy of following. And so when he said move, change size, guys, they did. And in a far greater way, our Lord was willing to do the hard yards, which is really challenging for us to follow that example. And when it comes to hurts, to take responsibility for our side of healing a hurt. To realise that the hurt of solving a hurt is less than the hurt of keeping it, let it get festering and, and blow up. Accept the surgical pain of dealing with a relationship. And accept the pain of forgiving someone else when we really say they ought to get their dues. But if you do that, you'll be blessed in a similar way to the Father blessing the Son. You'll be blessed with the healing of relationships. goes on. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave up his title for us. He gave up the privilege and the authority he had for us. He endured the pain of his Father's wrath against all the sin of mankind, endured being cut off, excommunicated for us when he came to this world as a man. And he shows us that the important thing was not the job title. It was not his position. It was not his reputation. 
most important thing is true love for which any suffering is worth enduring he ain't heavy, he's my brother and God calls us to nurture in our lives this mindset of this type of love the same love placed within all of us in embryo form as we become Christians even if you have to come down off your high horse to do so God the Father rewarded Jesus for coming down off his high horse because upon the successful completion of Christ's ministry he bestowed upon him this amazing title of the name not a name the name there's only one of these names and it's the name of ultimate authority it's authority over everything in heaven it said on earth under the earth Who was looking after Jesus' reputation on earth when he stepped down? His father. What happened to that reputation? It got trashed. And the restoration of his reputation with all the accompanying power and authority that comes with him having the name is yet to be revealed. But it's coming. And so what it means is for us is, if we're going to follow as the example is, don't be worried about doing something because it's beneath me. Don't think, ah, oh, my time could be better used than this. Don't listen to your pride because your pride only has your interests in mind and it doesn't have the interests of others in mind. And rather consider what you think God's calling you to do for others and place the needs and interests of those above yours. And if you really are doing something magnificent in this, then God will lift you up in due course. If no one is blowing your trumpet though, it's probably because it's not worth blowing. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's not saying that you have to work to get saved, but it's saying you have to let out what's inside you. You have to show the workings. You have to reveal what's really going on inside you by living it out in your daily life. And we have this wonderful encouraging fact in that. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in a order to fulfill his good purpose. God's in there helping with that. Willing and acting in you to fulfill his good purpose and learning to rely upon the fact that God is already in your life and working in you is an amazing relief because you realise, oh, it's not about me manning up and getting stronger and more intense. God's in there. It's an amazing relief to realise Jesus is ready to help any time that we say, what do you want me to say and do today, Lord? It's a relief because we don't have to sweat and struggle and strive to work out what God's will is for our life because we can trust that he'll show us. And whether we're listening well or we're listening poorly, I know that God is nevertheless still working within me to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose in me. And if God is working continually in me, then I can relax over what I call the gravity of responsibility. You know, it's all on me. And particularly kids getting to the end of 
year 11 and 12 feel the whole world depends the weight of oh you have to make the right decision for working life and you don't have to worry about that if you've asked God to show you and if you trust and if you rely upon him and you can be spared that merry-go-round of having to know whether you're effective for the Lord whether your ideas are good ideas or not because it's enough that God knows what you did that's enough because you asked him in the first place so if you relied upon him then you can rely upon him to give you ideas you can rely upon him to help you with those ideas and it takes the sting out of saying how am I doing? am I doing alright? because you won't get into trouble with God if you're following what you think he told you and when you decide to follow Jesus' example and just obey him that means that any of the glory through what you do goes to him because he does stuff through you. The more obedient you are, the more you get. So one last little thing to think about is do it without grumbling. People who don't lock into what they've received from Christ can very easily grumble. And it's such an onomatopoeic word, isn't it? Grumble, 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 grumble. Sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Um, so... We've got, got to be aware that we don't get into these sort of attitudes like, oh, nothing ever goes right for me. Never have enough money. No one likes me. And you know there are some groups of people you hang around with and everything is grumbly. We'll all be ruined hand in hand. But a grumbly spirit, a grumbly attitude makes no sense if you're a Christian because even if you lose your life, you win. And Paul wants us to evict that grumbling, argumentative attitude, although he did say, if you remember, that we have to work out with fear and trembling. So, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, and you will shine among them like stars in the sky. People who don't grumble stand out, don't they? And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labour in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Ends with joy because this is Philippians. Some cultures of the world are honour-based. Saving face is their daily pastime. Jesus' way is the opposite. He wasn't concerned about saving face. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. And many of the hurts we've received are fed by our concern for our reputation, for our worry about what others will think about us fed by our hurt emotions. Jesus never worried about that. Didn't worry about it when they attacked him, when they hurt him. He wasn't looking for the love of the world. He was looking for the love of the Father. So let's us have that same attitude. Let's look for the love of the Father for how we live our life. And let's not be too proud or too conceited to obey what he tells us to do. Let us let our concern for other people overwhelm our concern for ourselves. It doesn't matter if the one who hurts you never gets it. Never gets it. 
never gets their comeuppance, never pays back what they owe you, never gives you your job back. Jesus never tried to get even. And if you really get this attitude right, then you're going to have a solid foundation for healing the hurts in your life. And even if your life is poured out like a drink offering and you know, I poured it out on the altar and it just ran away without a trace, you can be glad and rejoice if your mindset is the same as Jesus who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Gracious Lord, your attitude just challenges us deeply. Every now and then we get reminded of how our whole day is all bull about us coping and us doing stuff. Instead of seeking to return your love that we've received to you and to those around us. So my prayer is that you would enable us to be experts in sharing the love of Christ with one another and with those we encounter this week. And all for the glory of God.